Hello everyone. Welcome to Bitcoin and Philosophy's fifth session. It's actually the first session of the second module and I'm going to pass it on to Nick to begin the seminar. Hello Nick. Hi. Thanks man. Go ahead. Um, uh, uh, welcome everybody. I'm great to see you all. Um, so there is a there is in theory a central topic this week which is Bitcoin and signs and I'm sure that we'll have opportunity to talk about that I'm going to only say a very few things about that initially um, and see what the kind of lines people want to follow up um, and in addition we have there's three uh, posts from people on the classroom that are all I think extremely interesting um, we we were introduced to this rather strange um, a strange innovation called Bitcoin by Dana that was the first thing to arrive um, it's it comes out of the art world it's kind of humorous but I think also it's serious in interesting ways um, and there's uh, while I'm totally new to it um, so I'm not going to put on some authoritative tiara or anything while, while talking about it I, I certainly think there's stuff to be said about that then um, Laura has sent us a set of points about um, Bitcoin and science focusing on the question of zero and I think this is a mixture of things that I strongly agree with and would perhaps want to even push a little further than than Laura has done here in terms of backward um, and, and other things that are really deep and complicated and I think aren't going to be resolved unless by some stroke of cosmic fortune in this particular session but we'll see how we go about that and then the last one to come in, an also fascinating piece, is a connection to a text uh, from now. These people I recognise a lot, and they are they are obviously taking this topic seriously. It comes out of this institution related to Git lobbying. I think it's based in Amsterdam, but the writer of this is, is an American academic, and it's called. Um, I don't know whether you'd say provocatively. For me, in a stimulating way, it's called Bitcoin can be seen as a technical... Of, oh, no, sorry, hang on. The, the post, the thing is called uh, Bitcoin as Politics Distributed Right-Wing Extremism. Um, and it's also got a lot of interesting things going on in it. I think some of it, to me, is a little bit confused in the sense of being, trying to do several things at the same time that don't necessarily gel that well but I'll see what people uh, think about that um, it certainly to me has a lot to recommend it as a, as a, as a discussion topic um, so I think I'll just start off a, a little bit on signs and um, I could say ironically, but I don't know whether it would be better to say predictably, the whole discourse around signs 
is absolutely admired in massive terminological confusion. Um, it, it tends to be these different camps with their own specific vocabularies. They don't mesh together very well. Um, and it's very hard, as I think we'll find, trying to talk about it, uh, to really settle on an agreed set of definitions for some of this language. And I think that itself is an interesting um, issue. Um, but I think it's worth um, starting off with some of the there's a tendency of all of these different schools of semiology to want to fix upon a particular aspect of the sign and to try to univi universalize it and to, to get every other aspect of semiotic reality out of out of this particular characteristic. And so, for instance, you know, in lots of the what we might call continentalist type of discourses, um, the role of the sign as a signifier has been absolutely foregrounded and treated as the basic uh, principle of the sign and everything has been sort of folded into that and, and worked in that way. And so you get these enormously complicated and, and uh, detailed semiotic discourses that are all based on the life of the signifier and the way that the signifier operates. Um, but if we go back to a point that I think is extremely helpful in articulating things that cross a lot of different traditions, um, the distinction that is made by uh, Frege between um, significance and reference um, to me suggests that there are these functional axes of the sign that are usefully held apart. Um, and in an absolute nutshell, in applying this to Bitcoin, I really want to say the following thing. That money historically has usefully, can be usefully uh, approached by both of these dimensions, and I'll talk, I'll say a very, very little bit about them in a, in a second, but that the monetary sign is not deducible or derivable either from sense or reference. Um, that those two things are at work in the sign, in the monetary sign, but they do not actually capture or isolate or explain the function of the monetary sign. And that Bitcoin is helping, I think, to precipitate a, some clarity on this subject. And I think it necessarily involves the introduction of a third dimension to the sign that is absolutely indispensable for understanding the sign as a currency unit, as a monetary as a monetary sign. Um, so very quickly, the distinction between sense and reference as, as Frege, his famous example is obviously to do with Venus, where he says you've got ways of talking about Venus where you can call it either the morning star or the evening star, and these things have different sense 
but in both cases the reference is to the same thing which is Venus so the, the, the language operates on these two levels one is a level to do with significance and association and meaning and the other level is to do with designation and actually indexing some thing um, and as I say the first of these I think has been much more florid in its development within certainly European influenced modes of, of philosophy the latter um, it seems to me is much more helpfully approached as a practical thing because um, indexing and referentiality in this in this sense is tied up with addresses um, where the address doesn't have to have any significance whatsoever it simply points you to something else reliably so for instance if you take if you take um, money as our example and we try to stick with that you take an old coin and the coin has in more than one sense two faces it has two obviously two faces as a, as a disk but it has two semiotic faces that you can isolate and one of them is saturated with significance there's all kinds of there's all kinds of markings on the sign on the coin to do with dates and pictures of emperors and, and various words um, and associations that then follow from that coin all of those kind of things and it also has a reference that's initially to its own Janus faced existence that it tells you that this is a lump of metal of a certain weight and quality um, and so with the coin it really is this Janus face thing that those two things belong together that in the mint there is this semiotic fusion of, of sense and reference in the coin and it refers to itself but also um, in its circulation and in its social usage it, it has all these significances and associations some of which are just directly uh, imprinted upon it the, the point where it becomes clear that these two things are different is obviously when we get to the stage of paper money and going back as I always do to this to, to this fundamental form of paper money as a warehouse receipt for a deposit of precious metal now in, the, in that case again you can have whatever you like written on the front of this of this piece of paper and it will probably be extremely ornate and you could maybe have biblical quotes from it and all kinds of all kinds of statements of this kind brands and trademarks and all of these kind of things but there'll be a certain element in it a certain semiotic element which just points you to an account um, and it will mean that this element this code need have no significance at all it doesn't mean anything it will just be a string of identifying numbers but it means that it actually connects the note to a lump of metal 
that is not being seen, it is not being represented in any clear sense, it's just being accessed by an address. So this is like a primordial bank account number, you know, which is also on the same access of reference or whatever. Um, so the point here is just to say it's it's not at all to say we want to just scrub this sense reference language away. I mean, it's got a very rich involvement in the history of money. It's very interesting in relation to money. And reciprocally, within these semiotic discourses, there is constant allusion to a metaphorical invocation of money. And people say, oh, in all kinds of ways, language is like money, it socially circulates, um, it has certain characteristics that seem to be um, just to repeat this word, that, that, that allude to monetary circulation. But when we sort of become a little bit more specific, and here again I think our guide coming out of Bitcoin and coming out of this whole project is, is absolutely solidly the reliable thread is the double spending problem. This is something uh, Laura is talking about in her points too. Um, that there are all kinds of ways that you can signify money and refer to money and use signs in these ways that seem deeply involved with money and are not monetary signs. You know, anytime someone just speaks about money or in a journalistic article refers to money or even in a journalistic way refers to particular accounts or particular deposits, um, they're using signs obviously in some way to uh, refer to or, or to signify money, but none of these signs have monetary value. And the reason that they don't have monetary value, uh, I think is not hard to see, is because they are not scarce. That in talking about money, one is not sacrificing the future potential to talk about money in exactly the same way. So in all of these types of sign systems, what you are always doing with signs is in fact duplication. I mean, to be super crude about it, but I think not unhelpfully crude. Uh, you know, I have a message and in using signs, you then also have the message. You know, I am duplicating the message. The fundamental semiotic uh, activity is proliferation, duplication. So now you also have the message, but I still have the message. I have not parted with the message. I have not, there's not been any kind of commercial substitution such that you now have the message instead of me. And neither, neither of Frege's axes capture this phenomenon at all. This isn't, you can't get from the notion of sense or the notion of reference to the notion of semiotic scarcity or to the notion of the, uh, what from in Satoshi Nakamoto's sense is the solution to the double spending problem. The solution to the double spending problem being the condition for the origin of the monetary sign. 
that even if that problem is still lurking away and there's still people counterfeiting money and there's still people clipping coins, there always has to be a satisfactory solution that at least seems in the interim adequate. You know, hanging a few counterfeiters, having some kind of restraint on, on, on the abuse that can be subjected to coins that allows a society to say that it has a functional solution to the double spending problem. And it's only in the era of the digital side, digital money, that, that these kind of um, compromise solutions become completely inadequate and, and the double spending problem becomes such a crisis that it requires a formal solution of the kind that Bitcoin represents. So there has to be a third dimension to the side. And um, I'm extremely um, unsure about what is the best terminology for this. Personally, I've been using the word that there is um, sense, reference, and commutation, that the sign has to be commutative, which means, not in the mathematical sense, but in the sense of substitution, that if a monetary sign, when passed from one party to another party, ceases to be available to the first party. That there actually has to be an act of substitution, a trade-off. And this is something I think that is not implicit or, as I say, derivable from these other um, philosophical and semiotic formulations of the, of the nature of the sign at all. It's something else, something that absolutely needs to be added in order to have a, a functional monetary sign. Um, I think you can see this in the word that could be extremely helpful, except that it's still terminologically very blurry, of a token. Because I think when people use the word token, colloquially, they often mean exactly this. You know, if you have a token for a gambling machine or a token for a, a vending machine or some kind of token in some other system of exchange, it's implicit in that idea of a token that if you give over, if you pass over that token to somebody else, if you engage in a commercial transaction with that token, or if you put it in the machine, you no longer have that token. It's not like a message that you still have even after passing it on to someone else. It's something else. You have sacrificed that token in exchange for something else, and that is why it works as money, because it's scarce. You only have a certain number of tokens, and therefore you have to make trade-offs between the various ways that you could spend this token. You could you could save it, you could use it for the A, B, or C, but you can only do one of those things. You cannot do some multiple of those different things. Uh, unlike a word that if I use it in one sentence, I can, in the next breath, use it in another sentence. So a token, in this sense, is a scarce sign. Now I don't think unfortunately that this is by any means the consensus or accepted or generalized meaning of the word token. I think if you look at the way it's used in a lot of discourses it doesn't yet have that as, a, as an essential defining feature and I think it's only going to be useful to us if we can accept that when we call something a token we're saying it's commutative in this economic sense. That it that is that it has to be spent to be to be used. 
Um, now, I just I won't I won't spin that subtle up, but I'll just I'll just introduce one more factor that I think is is relevant to this, which I think brings us on to some of Laura's problems and some of the other maybe even all the other issues in these other things that people have sent along, which is talking about codes. And I think talking about codes is immediately much more um, nailed down. I think that it's much easier to, to talk about codes in a way that is generally agreed and crosses across different discourses without um, entering into the same confusions and the same absence of, of a satisfactory definition. And there are two aspects to a code that I think are really important and are universal characteristics. The first is it is all every code is a mapping between two different series. There is a, there is one series of signs that is acting as a code and there is another series of signs that is being coded. And whichever code you look at always has that factor that is mapping two series um, onto each other. Um, whether you're just using it in a modern cryptographic sense, whether you're meaning it in terms of genetic code, whether you're meaning it in terms of machine code, or in terms of this, uh, the Bitcoin process, an absolutely classic code is a hash function. A hash function is absolutely specifically a set of mappings from one series of um, signs into another series of signs. So that when you hash something, you just map it across from, from uh, state A to state B according to this um, exact um, procedure. And the second thing about a code that I think then brings us into a lot of these uh, issues is that a code is, um, if not with the, with the same universality as, as, a, as being a mapping, with a very high level of universality, a code is a set of instructions. Or I think, you know, to put a bit more warmth into it, we could say commands. So again, I mean, the two most, I think, important codes um, in terms of their, at the core of everything that is happening on this planet is, I mean, the genetic code is precisely where DNA data, just a series of signs that contain a certain quantity of information, when, you, when that goes from simply a string of um, signs to being a code, the genetic code, it's when it actually becomes a set of instructions where it produces proteins. So the genetic code, it's not just that we then have a mapping of one thing onto another. In this case, we have a mapping of, um, of DNA bases, organized DNA bases, onto proteins, but we have a set of instructions for the production of proteins. Um, similarly, obviously with machine code, um, that we have a machine code rather than just binary data at the point where we actually 
are chunking that data in a way that will produce reliable instructions for a machine. And of all the things that might be critical about this, one that I think is really gets us onto the double spending problem, um, and uh, as I say, the issues that a lot of people bring up here, is that as soon as you have a code, you have a set of instructions, you have the opportunity, you, you first of all have a certain kind of elementary value. Um, and this is shown, let's take the biological example. In, in the example of DNA, because there is a genetic code, because just certain um, lengths of DNA will actually instruct a cell to produce proteins, then something else, let us say non-randomly, because it's the most significant example, a virus, can hack into that code and use it to, in this case, use the cell as a factory to produce viruses. This is obviously what, there's no doubt lots of different um, discourse that we could pursue this in. The one I'm most familiar with is, 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 the, is the discussion of surplus value of code that you get into learning with Um um, the most elementary example is the virus. And as I've sort of mentioned very briefly before, I think already with this state of, di of discussion, we have the double spending problem. We have the double spending problem because once we've got this very elementary coding and um, semiotic apparatus, we have a machinery that is worth capturing that a virus does not need to produce a body for itself, a true soma. All it is is a little packet of instructions because it can take a body from somewhere else and use that body to produce viruses. And it can do that because of surplus value of code, because code is instructions, because as soon as you have the genetic code, um, the cell will obey someone feeding the right string of codons into it and telling it what to do. So if a virus tells it what to do, rather than the, the uh, cell nucleus telling it what to do, it will still do that thing. It will still produce proteins in the order that have been um, requested. I take um, Deleuze and Guattari's most famous example of this, which is this um, um, example of this, they say, the wasp and orchid. Now this is, I think, relevant because it's when they talk about signs, this is the thing that they always really want to go back to. They want to treat this as the model. If you can understand what's happening here, they think you're really understanding what signs are about. And the wasp and the orchid, they say, is also an example of surplus value of code. How is it working in that case? Well, it's working because a flower has a certain relationship to insects and like the virus it wants to hijack a body it wants to hijack the body of the insect in order to not have to uh, waste resources on its own intrinsic reproductive organs so rather than the, the flower finding some way itself to invest expensive resources in transmitting pollen from one flower to another it uses 
the insect will say in this example the wasp to do this for it and just like in the case of the virus the way it does that is it finds a code a very specific code in this case which is the code within the wasp that tells it to respond in a certain way to a certain pan pattern that it will that will uh, activate its sexual response to this flower. It will think if you have a certain pattern on the flower, the wasp will treat that flower as a wasp of the opposite sex and and go through sexual behavior with the flower in such a way that it's covered in pollen and then when it flies to the next flower it will spread that pollen and act as the flower's reproductive organs. So, so there too um, the crucial thing is that the is that the flower is operating the, the the strategy of the flower. The reason there are flowers at all is because the flower has as part of its environment this coding system belonging to another species. It can hack that code and produce a set of instructions for the wasp that the wasp will obey and therefore act as an organ for the flower. And so, obviously, just rushing through to the most recent stage of this, computers obviously also are susceptible to viral attacks in exactly the same way, because there is machine code. Um, there too, if, a, if the computer receives a certain set of instructions, it will do what those instructions are telling it to do. And if those instructions have come from a computer virus, it will do what the computer virus tells it to do, rather the, than what the uh, operator or owner or whatever of the computer is, is telling it to do. Um, so the point of all of those examples of surplus value of code is that they're all examples of duplicity in the specific sense that the, that the double spending problem is addressing. The code, the signs that actually activate this process are cheap. The behavior that is being activated is expensive, and so you're getting that expensive behavior cheaply by rather than building up the entire system, you simply produce the code to hijack the the coding function of some other system, whether it is a cell a a, a wasp a, a, a computer it's the same thing in its in its semiotic um, essentials that is happening in all of these in all of these cases, and it's I think directly addressed by this question of the double spending problem. Because just to get back one more time to the origin of all of this, in all of these cases, the the original code is not securely tokenized. Whether in the cell, whether whether in the wasp, whether in the computer, the, it 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 accepts this code, which is not tokenized. That means it can be spent multiple times. You know, it's obviously most clearly exemplified again by the virus case, where it can just massively replicate billions of viruses. Uh, without any kind of limit, and all of those viruses can then infect other cells and turn those other cells into virus factories as much as you like, because because the code that the virus is reproducing 
doesn't have any um, integrity as a token. The virus is not sacrificing anything or very little to reproduce that code. And this, so this is what any monetary system at a, at a, at a higher level obviously is its condition of possibility is that it excludes um, inadequately tokenized sign, sign systems. If, 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 it, if a sign system is inadequately tokenized, it's vulnerable to exploitation by some other system which will be able to exploit the surplus value of code of that system. In the monetary case, it would obviously be catastrophic almost instantly. Like if a particular uh, loose sign of a Bitcoin could access all the resources that money would normally be able to uh, access without, without scarcity, without commutativity, that it would see as a sign, you could just replicate the sign and every time you replicate the sign you would access the resources appropriate to that sign, then the collapse of the monetary system is almost um, automatic and at extremely high speed. So obviously, uh, in this way, and this is, as I say, I, this is why I think, like Laura talks about um, the double spending problem going back to the origin of paper money and perhaps before, I think it goes back to the origin of replicating molecules. I mean, I think it's like the fundamental semiological and coding problem is of vast generality. Because wherever you have a problem of surplus value of code, you have an application for the double spending problem. And so it seems to me it's an, a foundational constituent of any general semiotics that wants to include money as part of its topic. Um, but I will, I will pause at that point at least and see a whether there's points of um, that people want to go off, particularly on this question about Bitcoin and science, or b whether one of these three um, topics that we've been sent by by Dana, Laura, and Alex is something that people want to uh, wander into at this point. Nick, I have a question. Sure. My question has to do with I'm I'm just gonna like address the very last little bit you you uh, brought up, which was about um, the problem of duplication and money going back to our bi biology, right? Yeah. I wonder how does this map onto the question of crystalline and crystals because when how does that how does that work when when a crystal is formed from basic very very big much more basic than biology right right the set of instructions yes. that causes causes crystals to come to shape or to existence 
yes, it's obviously an interesting challenge. I mean, my sort of immediate response is then to say, well, can we find a, a, any point of application for the surplus value of code in the case of a crystal? Yes. Like, is it possible for one system to hijack instructions in some process of crystallization, or is that not possible? Because it seems to me that is the threshold at which we can then, you know, once we can say, look, this system is simply consistent in the sense that the energy input required by the system is directly tied up to the product of that system. Um, so there's no way that the energy input can be accessed externally and the code cheaply produced can just be translated across and access these energy resources in some other system. So I'm not then dogmatic about the response to that question. I, I, I would really want to know a lot more about crystal chemistry to know whether that is something that imaginably can happen. Thank you. I have a couple questions. Um, one of them is is really I'm trying to find. I wrote down exactly what you said, but it had to do with this. I believe you used the term scarcity of. Um, yes. And I think it was with reference to the inverse of something I've been thinking about a lot. So without getting lost, I'll just say I'm been um, working with some people and doing some research on a certain trajectory, a continental trajectory of, uh, I guess you could say, semiotic theory, for lack of a better way of putting it. Right. That sort of begins with Levi-Strauss and the notion that there's an excess of signifiers to the signified. And um, so you get Levi-Strauss, you get Blanchot, you get Foucault. To some extent, some people might put Deleuze in this category. It's a certain trajectory of continental thinking which appeals to this, um, what has been called empty square. This really, this, this excess that, that sort of perplexes and troubles writers like Foucault and Blanchot when they think about language. And what I thought was really fascinating was I think you were saying the opposite, which is rather than there being excess of signifiers to signifieds, you have um, a scarcity of signifiers to the signified when we talk about the monitor, monetary unit. Um, you certainly have to produce a scarcity for it to be money. Yes, that would be that would be. I mean, look, um, one direction that I think we, we should go in at some point, because it goes directly into this, um, the paper that Alex sent us, uh, it's by, people probably haven't had a chance to read it, so some of this, it's by David Columbia, um, and it is interesting, and he, but he particularly talks about deflation, in this, which is obviously an extremely closely related issue. You know, if we're talking monetary terms, inflationary and deflationary dynamics directly address this. I mean, it might be too one-dimensional for what you're wanting to say about it, hmm. but 
one could certainly say that the, at least in the monetary sphere, the phenomenon of the excess of the, I'll do some quote marks in the air here, the signifier, um, is inflation. You know, and obviously dramatized maximally by hyperinflation, where you've got a wheelbarrow full of monetary signs desperately searching for someone who will part with a loaf of bread or a packet of cigarettes in exchange for this psychotic profusion of signs. Um, so, I mean, maybe I should just ask you whether you think that that is, I mean, to what extent is that? latching onto the same problem. Yeah, I'm not sure. I have to think about it. So, if I'm understanding you correctly, the, the very notion of inflation itself, when we're talking about money, you're suggesting um, could, could latch on to this, what I'm calling, uh, and I realize I haven't unpacked this or explained it at all, but the empty square, this excess of signifiers. But it, well, it seems to me initially very close, but I'm definitely open to correction. If I'm jumping too quickly into this, you know, and getting too concrete too fast about it, then I can easily imagine that's that's happening. Um, obviously, mm. you know, working on this this topic, these these particularly monetary examples are the ones that come to mind for me first. I mean, do you ha are there any particular examples of this empty square phenomenon that, that you yeah, think I, helped it? I wish I had uh, the people I've been working with with me because they're much more articulate about it, but I don't know if it does only because it's really, well, the essence of it is the notion of a negativity. That there's a, ne because what you're, when you talk about inflation, the excess still always refers to a token, or maybe it doesn't because when you talk about, yeah, it does. I mean, there's always a token, but because, of course, I'm thinking about language now, not money, what, what I'm talking about. So the, this notion of an excess does not refer to a token. It is, in fact, the, the empty space, the pure symbolic, the purely negative. And it's, it's, so, it's so present if you look at sort of Foucault's philosophy of language or, or, or Blanchot or Lévi-Strauss. Um, and this excess somehow sort of drives or is the impetus for language itself as if there wouldn't be meaning if there wasn't this negativity. So this is, I, I don't want to belabor right. this idea because it might be way too yeah. tangential, but it's, it's different than because you're looking at language from, uh, crassly speaking, the analytic perspective when you talk about Frege and the sort of history that's created, um, and and then that w so so and then but then there's this sort of continental um, trend too in in the philosophy of language, which oftentimes analytic thinkers don't don't contend with. I think um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I make no judgment. But um, so I just have that in mind, and if I if I could be more articulate later or in another session, I certainly will. Sure, um, it, we can definitely. Yeah. I mean, I'd only say on this analytic continental thing that I think, you know, again, correct me if if you think this is not right, but I think the um, continental aspect tends to be on the sense side of this sense reference mm. distinction, which is then vastly uh, elaborated, you know, and obviously then the 
cannot the absolutely pillar role of Saussurean linguistics in that and the whole um, that, that whole system about systemic production mm. of significance you know which I, I I'm not trying to um to, to, to foreclose out of this whole thing mm. I mean I think it is one I think predominantly one side of what is now a three a three side a three-sided kind of set of semiotic preoccupations and all of them are definitely relevant I mean you know for one thing again I should restrain myself from going too far down this particular avenue but if you say on these strictly Saussurean grounds um, that the meaning of the sign is is based on this differential relation which it is in, in relation to all the other signs in the whole of the language. So, so sort of haunting any particular sign is all the other signs mm -hmm. that determine it by their absence at any particular moment. Now obviously there is a sense where you could try and apply that sort of model to Bitcoin in a way, like in that it is purely quantitative. It's not it's not to do with significance in the same sort of way. It doesn't provide any meaning, except that the total global production of Bitcoin ever, you know, this magic 21 million figure, is obviously absolutely crucial to what any one Bitcoin means. Like mm -hmm. if you're saying, strictly speaking, what is the meaning of a Bitcoin on that axis, you're saying it's a 21 millionth of all the bitcoins that will ever exist. You know that's what it is, and you can't get to a sort of more basic significance of a bitcoin than that fact that it is this particular fraction of the whole entire um, stock of bitcoins either now or that ever will exist. So it's not. It doesn't seem to me that there's some sort of um, cultural gulf that's preventing some kind of translation activity taking place mm -hmm. between these two things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, great. So possibly taking a slight step back, but I don't really think so. Um, in terms of bridging the gap between uh, Ian, which you were talking about with the empty square, mm -hmm. and this sort of um, hyperinflation or inflation in general as mapping to the excess of the signifier. I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but could we understand the loss of value in a currency as that kind of pure negativity you're talking about? If by, um, if by pure negativity we mean something that's kind of, to some extent, of a different ontological regime than the signifier than that which there is an excess of, because that, you know, pure negativity is not a signifier among other signifiers, right? If we understand yeah. that, because in I mean, at least in traditional theory, is that inflation is what necessitates the continued circulation of money rather than it just being saved or hoarded or whatever as gold might be, at least in principle. And so if we understood this proliferation of signifiers as dropping all of their value in the sense of ability to uniquely refer or um, substantively refer to some signified, and as that which... and by that means then drives production of new ways of referring to it and transformation therein. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a mapping where this continuous inflation of signifiers by just sort of invention of new ways of referring things, referring to things is what 
is what drives the the exchange of those for new signifieds understood as that which you can purchase with money, commodities, something like that. Um, I guess you know. I also take a step back. Let me also take a step back in relation to that because you know, without wanting this to become some sort of dogmatic um, principle of of everything here. If I can just stick with it a minute and just hypothetically say that we need minimally for all the things we're going to want to talk about in terms of science, these three different axes. And let's say, because the terminological questions are so pressing, that we can talk about signifiers if we're talking about the Fragian axis of, of sense. We talk about indices if we're talking about problems to do with reference. And we talk about tokens if we're talking about monetary signs. Um, so, the, my question then is, c can we really deal with this hyperinflationary problem? And well, let's do that rather than just inflation because it's nicer and more dramatic. Can we really talk about that helpfully in terms of signifiers? I mean, you know, it seems to me, if we're talking about tokens, it all totally makes sense. Tokens should be scarce. And here you are with your wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks. They're clearly the scarcity constraint has completely collapsed. They are not scarce, and therefore they're ceasing to function as money. And it all is coherent. You know, whatever you then want to say about that makes sense. But I'm not even really sure whether we can think about a wheelbarrow full of signifiers. I mean, I don't know whether that's just a metaphor. Or what really, I would, without, again, knowing really, uh, without pretending to any kind of full grasp of, of the topic that Ian is raising here, it seems to me that something different is going on okay, if one is on, talking on. about, what about an excess of the signifier. Oh, sorry, you've gone silent, Jake. Have a, wait, say again? What about yeah, what? Yeah, like I just, cyber. The the, uh, the prefix cyber and it's sort of enormous overusage right now and there's right. been various sort of articles written about it and there's a you know a Twitter yeah. account that attaches cyber to everything you know a comedy account and yeah if that's understood and I, I think to some extent it is as driving a need for more and more specific more you know finely differentiated or expressive you know prefixes and adjectives to describe right. these various things that we're using cyber for. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that just occurred to me as an example. No, 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 that's good. That's that's very helpful. That's very helpful. And it seems to me that that is, you know, because we're talking about significance. Um, and so there is a certain kind of proliferation there that is about meaning. And as you say, you you stick cyber in front of anything, and there's an inf there's a kind of inflationary phenomenon at the level of significance or meaning, definitely, you can see happening. But it's but it's on another access to the wheelbarrow full of money, isn't it? Because the every Deutschmark in your wheelbarrow is completely redundant in terms of significance, isn't it? It's like they whatever you agree is the sort of function of a of a Deutschmark as a signifier, if you've got a, a million of them in a wheelbarrow, you're not in any way actually augmenting that significance in the slightest. You know, there might be then new significations that come in because it is in a wheelbarrow and all of these kind of extraneous factors. 
but there is a certain kind of semiotic replication and proliferation in the monetary sphere that doesn't seem to be tractable to this semiotic analysis at the level of the signifier that just seems to be operating so much on another dimension that it doesn't you don't get any purchase by taking that as primary yeah no for sure taking it as primary I was just kind of trying to work out a possible way of connecting them but yeah fair enough I understand what you mean yeah um, just all cards on the table I think you know, I I think this idea of First of all, the empty square for me, it doesn't identify with necessarily an excess. Rather, um, it, it's, it's a kind of zone of indistinction to use a kind of Agambinian type of language. Um, and one could say, for example, in, in Derrida, it's, it's, a, it's a zone where the signifier and the signified is just in, indistinct that they're indistinguishable. But I, I just wanted to say in response to Nick that, yes, Nick, I completely agree with you, and this is what I mean by all cards on the table, that maybe this language, and this is what's so fascinating to me, that this trajectory, um, whether we're talking about Foucault or Derrida or Agamben, maybe doesn't map on to what we're talking about. And to me, that's really, uh, for lack of a better word, profound. And I think to, the more we can look at the biological, the more we can look at the computer as, as a kind of uh, analogous biological mechanism, the more we may be able to push forward with the way in which actually we need to develop something else. So, right. yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think there is a particular, without wanting to localize this too much, it, we're obviously on one level talking about the academy as an institution, at least as being involved in this and it has a certain position in relation to signs that is interestingly specific you know mm. and and um, is perhaps one where the sign as token is going to be systematically under emphasized um, I mean, there's sort of really crass sociological things you could say about it, but there's a certain notion about the kind of the the kind of symbolic position of the of the intellectual and of the professional intellectual that pus puts them in a certain relation to the token, as we're understanding it here. You know, that your usage of signs in that in in that role is expected to, in a certain sense, be Generous, the, these notions that it's somehow uh, governed by hard rules of scarcity is a kind of implicit ethical issue, isn't it? I mean, it's like people would not necessarily have said anything specifically about it, but I would guess that it is always actually tacitly there in a certain sense. And there is a sort of, sort of, sort of tacit comparisons being made between different social institutions in relation to their relation to signs in which uh, the, the lack of the, the, the non-centrality of the token in the academic sphere is actually an extremely crucial symbolic factor and, and a form of social identification. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know whether I'm being a bit too no, elusive and vague about that. 
But, I you know, I mean, again, let, let me just for a minute just go totally crass and just say, you know, in, in the, to the sense that the, uh, the professional intellectual doesn't think of themselves as a banker, which I think, and I'll go further and say, at every minute of their life, they are not thinking of themselves as a banker with a certain kind of positivity. It's not just that they, if asked, they would say, well, no, actually, I'm not a banker. They would say, they would actually, in their continuous function as a professional intellectual, be not being a banker as something that's actually positive and, and in a way almost conspicuous, you know, precisely because they do not have the tokenistic, in this particular sense, re relation to signs. You know, and th th mm -hmm. there's a certain way that you could construct the figure of the banker where every usage of signs was economized. Mm -hmm. You know, that every word they every word they said, every document they produced, every semiotics exchange is integrated into a, a into an economic fabric that was ultimately regulated by these token systems. Mm -hmm. um, and and the academy is kind of, as I say, I think sort of overtly not that. Uh, and mm -hmm. therefore it wouldn't, it, it seems to me natural that it's the regime of the signifier mm -hmm. and not some other semiotic dimension. Nick, can I, can I jump yeah. in? Yeah, of course. Okay. In all of this conversation, one name is missing. And that is Pierre Bourdieu's and language and symbolic power, right? Because right. he also has an account of how symbolic economy functions. He, as most of people here might be familiar, he's completely against uh, like a Sothorian type of understanding of language, right? Right. And he emphasizes this sort of like institutional institutional setting as as like an element that like he basically I mean I mean you guys are familiar with what I'm talking about right just Do vaguely just vaguely I mean? just vaguely so continue yeah. for, for Bourdieu for Bourdieu uh, like these semiotic operations are not should not only be looked at from inside the language and should be looked at like how Nick was a Sorry, I've lost you there, Mo. Are you still? I lost you as well. Can you hear me? Yeah, now. Yeah, you're okay. back. So I don't know how far how 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 far could you guys hear me, but. Uh, Basically, for 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 Bourdieu also, like Nick, it's the inst it's like the institution. Yeah, that's Mo's gone again, hasn't he? Oh no! Yeah. <clears throat> that gives them their of how how fields of knowledge sort of have this autonomous but related. Uh, currency issuing power that they that they bestow upon those yes. who 
hold certain like a whole certain position of like within that within the field. Yeah. Actually, I think that's go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Well, I I think it's a very good um a very good thing to introduce it because I think Portio is really interestingly liminal figure in this actually. I think he's operating weirdly on this boundary between these two different uh, angles on the on the sign, and and if you take a notion of say symbolic capital, you know you can see that it's really on this boundary in a really interesting way. I mean, on one level, it's you can you can incorporate it to in, to some extent into this. Maybe you can I could very crassly say language of the signifier, you know, and you get someone like Derrida who's definitely on on I would say that side of the fence, very happily using these sort of notions of 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 of, of symbolic capital, um, of that somehow you you there are these processes of accumulation, there are certain forms of uh, wealth and power that can be stocked up in sign systems. Um, so it, it it does operate in a way that I'm not entirely clear about, sort of mechanically, on that level. And then on the other level, on the other side, it connects with things that I think are much more unambiguously economic, like credentials. I mean, credentials are tokenized if they work at all, don't they? I mean, if someone says, um, you know, I am a professor, um, then you're in a, a set of questions to do with, with trust and credibility and all of these things that are made for the blockchain. I mean, it's a, if, if, it, if people believe that someone is a professor, it's not anything to do with the number of times they call themselves a professor. It's not a pro proliferation of the signifier. It's because of the fact that there is a, uh, a system of scarcity tied up with the credential, and the credential, which is just being indexed by the, by the statement. You say, I am a professor, but your actual credentials as a professor are scarce. You know, you were only issued your professorship on the basis of certain very specific social processes having been fulfilled and you know there's a limited set of professorships and they can't be minted or proliferated or or subject to all of these forms of of semiotic inflation and it seems to me that Bourdieu is between these two these two uh, two sides there's a Janus faced aspect to it that on one level it lends itself to saying well what is Bourdieu really saying in terms of you know, can we formalize it as an economic process? And the other is more on this, the level of significance and giving this new dimension to significance to do with the way that that produces social distinction and symbolic hierarchy and these forms of um, prestige. Thank you. Not to belabor this, I'll make this quick, but it is interesting in the context of Lacan's whole university discourse, problematic um, 
and, and his own method of punctuation in, in the analytic setting. Because uh, I think in a sense, <clears throat> you know, when someone said something that he thought uh, resonated with whatever gulf was in their ego, and then he just, like, walked out the door and slammed it, in a sense, they were, like, giving out a token that he did not return, you know, and, and he got paid. So, right. So, in a funny sense, that that's a I think one one way the token uh, manifested itself in the whole signifier chain or its breaks. Yeah, I mean that is a extremely interesting whole zone that obviously people have um, delved into to some extent before. Is the fact that psychoanalysis is in this zone of intersection, isn't it? Um, someone like Lacan, absolutely extreme, because he's both to such intensity. On the one hand, it's a paid service, isn't it? There's a flow of money going to the analyst in return for some service, and you're totally in an economic register there. You know, I expect a, a certain amount of time or attention, or, I mean, it's an interesting right. question exactly what you're paying for, but, I mean, it's an economic transaction that's taking place and then on the other side obviously Lacan is being one of the vast you know masters of the signifier and, and, and entering into these kind of yeah. these kind of public philosophical languages um, so yeah hugely hugely important but if I could just add to, add to yeah, that sure. I have a friend who's a, a rather a Lacanian expert I'll say and, and he one said to me, he goes, you know, it's absolutely crucial that you take your patient's money, and not only that, but you charge them absolutely as much as you can. So the reason I'm mentioning that is because you pitch them as yeah. being separate, and like, but in, in no, yeah. according to my friend, it's it they're they're totally tied. It's absolutely a prerequisite of the therapy that sure. it costs more, pretty much as much, if not yeah. more, than you can actually afford. Yes. Yeah. Like no, no. If I, I was, I was unclear. With value. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like, no, I, I was definitely unclear. I, it's the junction that I definitely am trying yeah. to point yeah. to, and the, the fact that you do have this overcoding in this way that is open to all kind of readings. I mean, obviously, there's a super cynical reading that is too obvious to to even lay out, and then on the other hand, there's a a reading that is. Um, a sophisticated theoretical reading, however one wants to say that, where exactly as you say, mm. I'm accepting money, but only because symbolically and at the level of the signifier, parting with your money is 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 part of this therapeutic exchange. It's part of the transference and all of these, you know. So there's a kind of layering of the process at the level of the signifier over the process. At the level of the token, mm, um, right. that is open to this kind of multiple interpretation. Mm. Yeah, I don't don't mean to derail, but it's it's just fascinating. You know, someone talking and stumbling upon insecurity is the wrong word, but the issue, and to have him just terminate the session and leave them with that signifier, like he got it, they had it. Right. So I guess that exchange happened, but. <laughs> He leaves yeah. with the money, and they get stuck with the signifier. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it but, is totally but, fascinating. But what is, but what is fraudulent at the heart of that transaction? 
is the fact that the money paid to the money paid by the patient to the analyst is sort of like a it's like it it it's a it's a reverse it's a reverse it's sort of a reverse engineering way of substantiating the value of that uh, of the doubling that happens mm -hmm. by the analyst, right? Right. That is yeah. built into it as a way of sort of like delaying the delaying the question of like blockchain and mm -hmm. the actual transfer, right? right? So yeah. So that's that that's what's fraudulent at the heart of the of that monetary transaction at the end, right? Right. Yeah, I just think it's funny. Yes, I mean, I think the thing is that the the, the language of fraudulence belongs specifically to the tokenistic side of exchange. I mean, th mm. there's this interesting asymmetry to it that obviously, if we look, let, uh, this is crude, but 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 sometimes crudity is necessary. And, and if I, I can just divide the whole world into bankers and academics. <laughs> and 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 Lacan is in this role of, of the intersection. Let's say he's he's fortunate enough to have a banker at, as his as his analysand, and at any point he can say, "Oh, you're not getting what's happening here. You're just being a banker." You know, I, I'm going to dramatize that to such an extent. I'm just going to walk out of the room after two seconds and prove what a hopeless banker you are um, because I'm I'm on the academic side and I know it's all about signifiers and the fact that I'm only spending two seconds of my time rather than an hour of my time is not at all an economic issue for me it's totally to do with significance you know this my my analytical process with you is all happening at the level of the signifier there's no economy to it and I'm doing this I'm leaving after after two seconds in order to Help in order you. to break you from your bankeriness and 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 induce you into the superior order of the signifier now obviously it's at that point that the banker is likely to say that's fraudulent <laughs> you know I mean but 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 because of the fact that the language is is doubled in these two different registers, it, there's no resolution possible. There's not a common. I mean, Lacan just refuses to to to, to credit the tokenistic language of the banker as having any kind of authority in this situation at all, and and will always translate it back into saying, "Oh, you're not understanding the significance of what is happening here if you're going to use this." language and, and and in fact there's a certain sort of interesting kind of sadomasochistic aspect of Lacan isn't there where he's just wanting to actually say I will break you you know <laughs> I will break you out of this banker mentality you have and force you into the rapture of the signifier and if that means you pay me for a full session and you get two seconds then that is fine you know that's a sacrifice I as Jack Lacan will make reluctantly <laughs> in order to help you to escape your bankery limitation. Yeah. I think it was meant to be Zen, but I'm not so sure it, it is in the end. <laughs>
anyway. Um, I had a question, Nick, about the aspects of the code, uh, or of a code that you were talking about. Um, specifically, the, set, the second one, the algorithm or set of commands, um, as so understanding that set of commands to be either the first series understood as a set of commands that produces the second series, or the set of commands that defines the encoding and decoding, so that operates between them. Like, how do I get ciphertext from plain text or plain text from ciphertext? You know, that set of instructions, you know, take your A's and replace them with this and then multiply by that, is right. a different set of instructions, concretely speaking, than the ciphertext as literally each sign of that ciphertext being a set of instructions for producing, you know, yeah. from which you get the plain text. And sort of the, what I'm trying to do is to, um, to understand this, um, this set of commands that determines the mapping um, and its decomposability from, you know, one command, this plain text means this ciphertext or vice versa into several commands that then have, you know, a functional excess as being the basis for the surplus value of code. And so I guess, yeah. it, I don't know, what I'm asking is where you see what set of instructions you were talking about. Yes, I think that this is the relation between uh, cryptography, which is also the relation of these hash functions in general. Or only Some hash functions are obviously cryptographic, but some are not. Some are just to do with a certain kind of um, database economization, because when you use a hash function, you basically take an X number of units and put them into a more restrained field on, on the other side. Yeah. You can think of it as a, yeah, a codec would be another. A compression, sure. So, um, so when I said that um, this aspect of the code, that it is instructional, is actually of a lower universality than the instruction that it's a mapping, it's precisely, I think, because of this. I mean, there's going to be a non-linearity in this. Obviously, there will be a set of instructions to perform all of these operations. Hash functions, cryptographic functions, all of these will require computer instructions. But, but the ma mapping itself is not something that is giving you a surplus value of code until it is actually uh, giving you control of a machine. I mean, I think, or I think I can say with confidence that any example of surplus value of code, there must be machine control, whether it's the, the cell being controlled by the virus, the wasp being controlled by the flower, the computer being controlled by the computer virus, unless, unless you're actually operating at the level where you actually have effective control over a machine, it's that effective control over the machine that is the value in the surplus value of code. And so, in principle, when in a monetary system, in a system of values, you could have any number of displacements, any number of codings and decodings and encryptions that just simply displaced the, the signs between various levels of plain text and ciphertext. But until you get the level that is actually machine control, you don't have the level that is actually generating value that can be hijacked by some external system. Right, and so I mean, I used plain text and ciphertext just to start at, I don't know, what I thought of as the simplest, or what to me is the most straightforward yeah. um, level, but so I guess a better example for what we're talking with surplus value would be um, viruses. So with viruses, 
your um, your subdivisions of the instructions for encoding are proteins, right, or the transcription of proteins. So I guess right. what you're saying is that the you know the the base pairs that the virus is able to uh, well, I misused transcription is able to transcribe into the genome only gain surplus value of code to the extent that there are um, that there are decomposable protein translation instructions in that encoding, which have a yes. functional or excess functional value, which can then become the surplus value of the RNA or the DNA. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the payout is in protein. So gotcha. the code, it's only it's only at that point that you actually get the economics of it. Yeah, and it's the same, obviously, with money. Like, even though Bitcoin is a self-enclosed semiotic system in a way, and that, as we've been to over and over again, you go through the Bitcoin paper, and it's purely about the scarcity of Bitcoins without specific reference to their commercial application. But once again, a Bitcoin fraud, or if anyone was able to, in any way, hijack Bitcoins, the payout would be in what Bitcoins are actually able to uh, perform as instructions in some, let's crudely say, like energetic medium. It's what you would actually get in terms of, you know, drugs or okay. Silk Road or whatever it would be. <laughs> that, that's the payout. Can I ask a question just to clarify this point? Um, so basically, you're saying that it. I don't know, is that the blockchain as a, or Bitcoin as a machine in, a, like, prevents uh, the formation of a surplus value, right? Yes. Okay, cool. And yes. another question. I mean, can I sort of just say this? I'm not sure it might be that you would want to rephrase that because the potential surplus value of code is huge. Um, right. So it prevents it definitely being hacked, yes. Yeah. The, the hacked would be the double spending, and that, that would be an exploitation of the surface value code that, you're right, is being blocked by the, by the protocol. Yeah, that okay. is the, the solution to the double spending problem. Right. Okay, thank you. Because I had another kind of question. Because you said before that the double spending basically goes back to the duplication of cells, so the origins of biological systems, right? So yes. I just had this thought, like it's perhaps, I don't know, quite silly, but I was just thinking because, so basically, right, economy, if economy is effectively modeled upon physics, right, and like, I don't know, like, uh, well, yeah, physical systems, so the question just occurred to me was like why would we eventually want to abolish the double spending instead of perhaps of like harnessing in different ways than I don't know the system of the single cell that duplicates so, I don't know I'm thinking about the selfish gene and, and this sort of like I don't yeah. know uh, accounts of uh, biological evolution and these kind of things because obviously I don't know in the system right like composed by the, by the wasp and the orchid this system I mean the surplus this right the orchid 
hijacks the wasp, but at the end yeah. of the day, no one really loses anything, right? Right. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, yes. it's just, I don't know. No, it's, uh, to be honest, I mean, this, I think, is like, he opened some doors on this question, and it definitely becomes really deep and complicated. I totally agree with you about that. I mean, like, um, there's, a, there's a crass level, like, if you just go back to a viral example, which is just raw exploitation, it yeah. seems... You know, but then you actually go into these bacterial systems, and they use viruses to communicate with each other. And I mean, you know, the, it's very hard to get to a point, and I would say probably naive, to say that you just can sort of isolate something as a phenomenon of raw, unambiguous exploitation in the system. And I agree. When you get to the stage of like the wasp and the orchid, it's extremely, it's extremely difficult to do that. You know, and then we're in, I mean, all modern biotechnology is just pure surplus value of code ransacking of, of, of the natural world. And I'm not meaning that moralistically. I mean, you know, it's like a, 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 at least potentially a incredibly positive thing, but that's what it is. You know, there's all these sets of instructions and machinic capabilities lodged in these in these biological systems that um, biotechnology is just systematically trying to hack and get cells to produce motor fuels or to produce useful drugs or all of this kind of thing. I mean, it's all so surplus value of code. Um, but yes, and, and then uh, on the other side, I think that your question connects up a lot with this other side that, that you know we get in with high intensity in this paper that Alex sent us because it's for instance uh, let me just try and uh, very quickly just point to this because it ties back to this question of inflation or deflation like Alex actually quotes some of this paper and it says um, the most dangerous kind of value fluctuation is the deflationary spiral you know, which world currency is currently experiencing one of the most dramatic deflationary spirals anyone has ever seen? Bitcoin itself, the existential threat to the liberal nation state. So it's basically saying, quite rightly, that this project of the production of a sign system that is immune to the surplus value of code can be translated without too much difficulty into this in question of inflation and deflation and in that question of inflation deflation is an extremely tractable although complicated and extremely ambiguous political economic dilemma you know it's very what you're saying about the cells or the wasps is actually formally and theoretically extremely close in its sort of abstract principles to these questions about deflation getting raised in this political economic sphere where people would say isn't the political task actually to um, finesse the social control over inflation and deflation rather than to try to exterminate it through this algorithmic mechanism I think this is what this guy ultimately would say. I mean, I need to look at it more carefully, but I think it's a position 
not many people are thinking about this yet, not enough in my opinion, but when they do, the dominant left of center widespread critique of Bitcoin will be that it's will be on these lines. It will be that def that inflation is being in some sense intrinsically algorithmically demonized and instead it's a social potential that we need to maybe adjust our relationship to even in fundamental ways but not to disempower. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I haven't read the, the paper yet, the Columbia paper. I should. Thank you. Um, so could we understand biotech and Bitcoin both and then so various other examples and I just sort of typed this up real briefly in the group chat as um, as systems learning to integrate or exploit like in the sense of taking out of the surplus and into their own pool um, the surplus value of code so in the sense that you know I mean over the history of infiltration by viruses organisms have I mean at least there's a lot of research and speculation lately in this regard um, learned various techniques for securing against mutation and also redistributing and sort of directing the effect of mutations and you know manipulating the um, the translation process of their own genetic code in ways that produce more novelty or more you know conservation over deep time <coughs> similarly um, you know biotech is a learning to take advantage of the surplus value of this genetic code you know by living things themselves us and then you know the things that we create as well and then in the case of the blockchain you know Nakamoto or whoever um, you know has we've learned all of this we've learned all this about the problems created by trusted third parties and of and then by of the ways that people exploited earlier hash cash um, you know to pay themselves and pay somebody else at the same time and then this taught or this you know, led to the creation of the blockchain blockchain paradigm um, as a way to you know to eliminate those problems and to reintegrate um, I don't know to reintegrate the surplus value into a new encoding mechanism or set of them so it's kind of um, rambling there does that yeah, make sense? Well I, I, I'm intrigued by this line line of talking about it I, and I mean my initial structure of understanding here would be different to that just because the, the most straightforward way of constructing it is that Bitcoin systematically eliminates its own vulnerability to hijacking by some other entity extracting surplus value code or in other words it's impossible that Bitcoin is constructed in such a way that it is not, it does not produce surplus value of code to extrinsic parties. But having said that, I'm again not wanting to just dogmatically uh, exclude or deny what you're saying about this. And, you know, there is obviously a question well, if you're thinking about Bitcoin as a new code system is it extracting surplus value of code and from what I mean I'm not at all eliminating that possibility it's something I'm not yet seeing but I mean it's something I'm open to 
to well, say. What about exactly what we you know we started out talking about, which is to say ontological functions of um, of monetarization. So if we think of Keynesian economics as an exploitation of the surplus value of monetary code in order to um, I guess like impose temporal trends or to you know to uh, execute temporal operations on the economy. Um, that the way Bitcoin establishes a history for itself and a new code for constructing consensus or consistent pasts for the economy, wow. the reintegration of that function that, I mean, not just Keynesian economics, that was just an example, but um, that various manipulations of the currency yeah. you know, were able to accomplish in terms of an ontological effect. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm definitely open to persuasion about this. I think if you pan out to the most abstract level, if you've got any system that is accessing energy inputs purely through the production of signs, you have to suspect that there is surplus value of code. I mean, Deleuze and Qatari would probably poke you with a sharp stick and say you have to be utterly confident that right. you there have surplus value of code. And so, obviously, set out on that level of abstraction, it's hard to deny Bitcoin is doing that. You know, when you see these Bitcoin factories, they obviously have massive energy inputs that were not going into this thing before. It didn't exist. And now, uh, you know, human and energy and technical resources are being pumped into this thing of producing and maintaining and running the Bitcoin system. So what has and in what way has this energetic, pre-existing, coded energetic structure been hijacked by Bitcoin and and so I'm saying without wanting to answer this because I'm I'm not able to answer it yet I'm just saying I'm extremely open to that being a productive question um, and it seems that there has to be a way of going down that road and answering it you know like otherwise how could Bitcoin exist how could there be a Bitcoin mining industry you know something has been Without closing that gap, do that. the abstract and the concrete, yeah, and it works yeah. in kind of the political as well as thermodynamic area as well, because you you know it uh, closes the gap between um, between let's see um, what's what am I looking for verification and voting I guess you know what the, there's all of this sort of talk about using the blockchain for digital democracy and you know, um, consensus about data, about IP rights and so forth, and you could, you know, maybe in this vein start to see that as a consequence of the narrowing of the gap between uh, economic and political activity, which has also been exploited by various monetary authorities in the, in the past. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I mean, this, this uh, is again really close to this, this, um, sorry, I keep forgetting the guy's name, this, um, Columbia paper um, and, and the whole way we think about the relationship between the political and the economic is obviously being thrown into a really potentially productive crisis, productive on a theoretical level. You know, people could lament it or be appalled by it, but in terms of actually forcing us to think about how these things are articulated, it's it's definitely extremely productive. And he is appalled, and the, the way he's appalled is really interesting because what he's appalled about is something that goes so much to the core of what modernity is about. 
you know, the very notion. It's yeah, I think it, he. I don't think he uses this phrase. I'd have to see, but it seems to me what he's about is the the politics of depoliticization. So he's saying, and this is this is the fundamental cognitive orientation of the left. I think in general, it's the most abstract thing is to say depoliticization is itself a political strategy. Um, and when he says uh, he is talking about um, the extreme right, I think that that's what it means. Is by the extreme right, it means a actually concerted politics of depoliticization. If we're putting it from his side, or sort of at its most extreme, um, in, epitomized by the notion of algorithmic government. The notion of a complete extermination of the political, um, which, of course, from this other side, the side of left critique, you want to say, of course, that is intrinsically massively political. You know, you don't, you can't, you can't tell us that you want to exterminate politics and then say that that isn't itself a political gesture. Um, and is that actually but, uh, something that you know the the algorithmic governance people argue with or find problematic? I mean, at least like I, I don't know what exactly is the argument against that being you know a, a politics or a political choice, even if it's the very last one. Right. I I would expect there would be some diversity about it, but I think part it's to me it's interesting this the the uh, term extreme right, you know, what is being said there. And I think if we sort of have our, draw our sort of political spectrum, again, super crudely, we've got extreme left, left, right, extreme right. And how do you pass in both of these directions to the extreme, you know? And I think the extreme is the place where certain things would be explicitly said. Um, on both sides that would not be said on when you're in the middle in the middle zone like on this example um, he he complains about when he says for instance let me just give a quote from this paper he says uh, enthusiastic demand we understand Bitcoin is a welcome political intervention but when pressed for details about the political intervention, its advocates unfailingly turn back to technical and engineering matters. Now, this isn't exactly, this isn't the perfect quote for this, this point, but it's related, is to say that um, this responsible evasion of the issue seems to me to be uh, non-extremist. I mean, the, the extremist is the position which is to say, yes, the, the goal is algorithmic government and the death of the political. That's the extreme position, surely. And the, the, the moderate position going in that direction is one that is encouraged by those trends and supportive of those trends, but is for purpose of realistic political compromise, not making them a... A firm statement and um, then as you migrate left to that it's a, a tendency to oppose those those same processes but a willingness to compromise with them that then passes out on the other edge into the extreme left by 
a absolutely uh, uncompromising denunciation in the name of the political of anything that would compromise with the tendency to algorithmic governments or depoliticization. Um, and I think Bitcoin. Sorry, I don't know what people can hear at this point. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin compels a crisis. This is what is interesting about it. I mean, there's no, there's absolutely no doubt about what it's doing, which is to eliminate politics from its own commercial sphere entirely. Um, the people can then, in a supplementary, say, well, it's got all kinds of political potentials that are that are missed by that and of course this this bitcoin thing if we I don't know again whether people have seen that would be an extremely interesting place to look to for that kind of thing but on the, in terms of the intrinsic bitcoin protocol itself it's straightforwardly simply unambiguously depoliticized money and of course uh, I agree that to say that you know to pretend that there isn't a politics of depoliticization is 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 utterly evasive, of course. Did did anyone get to see this strange Bitcoin paper? Uh, I, thought, I followed it. I followed it, and I'm kind of like looking at it purely from the, from the art from the from the art side of the right. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, I thought it was. I thought it was extremely interesting. I mean. What one thing is that there is a it's not a very developed argument but but if you're trying to split up people's um, positions on this I've already done this kind of ultras mainstreamers distinction and it at, at an angle to that it's not quite orthogonal and it's certainly not perfectly aligned it's at a dislike angle to it is a distinction that's tied up with um, this question of these altcoins uh, and I say it's at an angle because the mainstreamers tend to be sort of sympathetic I mean they're trying to invest in a Bitcoin infrastructure they like all kinds of economic activity in the area of Bitcoin they to, tend to play down the centrality of Bitcoin itself as a currency to the development of Bitcoin so all of these things place them in a certain position of in, implicit sympathy with altcoins whereas the ultras are more inclined to say Bitcoin is so revolutionary that anything that just uh, distracts from it or interferes with its accumulation network effects and delays the point where it goes head-to-head -head with these fiat currencies and wipes them out 
and I've already used this, I think, fantastically interesting term, hyper-Bitcoinization, which I think I'm attributing correctly to, to Daniel Kravitz. And he, he says that this is hyperinflation as it affects fiat currencies in the face of Bitcoin. Um, and he, he glosses it as saying, your money is not wanted anymore. So it's just like the guy with the, the wheelbarrow full of money. You know, he's got as many Deutschmarks as you could conceivably want to throw at anything. And people are just saying, we just don't want that stuff anymore. You know, it's, it's over. That, that absolute where, which hyperinflation is tending to, where there's simply no amount of the currency that has any value anymore. It's becoming absolutely worthless. And so Kravitz is um, is anticipating this in this Bitcoin world. He says, you know, there's a certain point where simply the only thing, the notion that you're going to accept US dollars in exchange for Bitcoins will be absurd. You know, you will simply be exchanging a, a real, real money for useless, fake money that everyone is trying to bail out of as quickly as possible. No, I'm not arguing for the credibility of that, or, or the, certainly not the time scale of that pronouncement. But it's just to say that because of that position, he hates altcoins. He thinks that they're just delaying this, they're just distracting people, that, that Bitcoin is the story and anything distracting from that is getting in the way. But then there's another trend that's obviously very uh, pro-altcoin and sees this as this ecological efflorescence coming off blockchain technology that should be welcomed and all these interesting things could happen. And maybe if the Bitcoin model is that it's just being driven by network effects to this position of being like a singularity where it's the only global currency, then the opposite extreme is an altcoin economy where everyone has their own altcoin or maybe several, you know. Um, the altcoins are just something that, that get massively proliferated and we're in this strange monetary world where there are, you know, countless money systems. So rather than being concentrated onto this Bitcoin, Bitcoin catastrophe, we're instead being pushed into this strange new world of all these currencies being produced, you know, as in this example, as an art project. I mean, that, um, that people have the capability to do it, the kind of software is there, and you can just produce a whole currency as something um, tied up with a particular project you're trying to undertake, as a certain artwork in itself, as a certain form of sort of self economization. I mean, it's hard to kind of quite get a purchase on what the, the, you know, what this kind of weird tropical feverish economy would be like. But this is certainly an extreme example of that. You know, whether rather than asking people for money, rather than engaging in art commerce in a traditional way, she just produces a whole new currency that is her artistic value monetized on the on on this blockchain technology. 
so I thought I thought definitely that was pretty interesting. This picture that you just painted, then um, uh, the thing that I've been worrying about um, was something that I think Laura brought up before: this idea that there is a kind of rigidity to the blockchain um, as a signifying system, as a production of temporality. It's it's hard to see where novelty can arrive if you can't have mutation, um, and it might work in terms of tokenization, but it doesn't seem particularly interesting, philosophically, maybe. And the, the picture that you just painted then was interesting because you get this kind of, like you said, this sort of tropical, feverish uh, patchwork of, of, of money ecology, which makes you start to think of Bitcoin as collapsing back into a kind of centralization. And I wonder if that, I mean, that just occurred to me then, but I wonder if there's anything in that, that it can then be returned to. I mean, if, if this kind of these hardcore Bitcoin ultras have their way, you just yeah. end up with another kind of very rigid, limited money system. Well, I mean, it would be, if they had their way, um, it would be an almost perfect simulation of gold in an economic, in a, an ultra hard money, gold based system. So, you know, po whatever positive and negatives you want to put to that, I don't think it's particularly unimaginable. I think we can imagine it extreme with high fidelity because it is such a high fidelity simulation of gold. I mean, there's, it's like gold beyond gold, really. And so whatever gold looks like, this is more than that. Um, um, but it seems to me hard to imagine in the short term that you could really realistically project this singularity where the only money accepted of value anywhere in the world is Bitcoin. I mean this is what some people are seeing for sure and it's like um, I mean I don't it's, uh, is it it's a, it's a obviously there's some haziness in this question about what one is asking for in terms of a mutation and uh, these kind of things isn't it? I mean money even the most sloppy fiat type of money it kind of mutates in certain ways, but it doesn't. I mean, and, unless I'm, you should speak for yourself about that. I mean, do you think that the the kind of mutations we're seeing within the fiat money system are attractive, creative mutations? Because they would die. Yeah. Um, but but I'm I'm just concerned about where this this kind of like um, theoretical vision of the blockchain is going. I mean, not in in terms of it being particularly positive or negative, but just that it shuts down a lot of possibilities, um, and it seems to kind of lead into a a space where nothing much can happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then what happens when you you mine your 21 million bitcoins? 
does this is actually something I mean maybe I should just go do some more reading and figure this out but um, yeah when those 21 million bitcoins are mined yeah how do, does the circulation keep keep going um, well, is it because of the tra I mean, do people keep mining to get transaction costs for the transactions they're performing for the people who have the bitcoins, and does that they, keep redistributing? Or I mean, it, it's supposed to be built in that a certain type of um, servicing, transaction servicing, will then be routinized that will guarantee people enough bitcoins from that to maintain the incentives that the system requires. And honestly, I mean, I couldn't say with confidence how much credibility I put in that. I mean, you know, it's obviously a serious question what happens at this point. I think it's the date is 2040 where there can there's no more bitcoin mining. And so whether it's produced a new stable incentive platform because the one it's got is so beautiful to my mind maybe that's a, a kind of um, highly questionable aesthetic vision but to, to my mind this basic loop of incentives between the miners and the, and the system production is just absolutely exquisitely beautiful and that will end and something that I think is going to be more messy by necessity is going to have to replace it so I don't know We've got yeah. 25 years. So. As, as you mentioned in, in, in another class, Nick, you said um, that one, uh, that essentially Bitcoin, it's in it, I think you mentioned the term game, the, the framework of game, game theory. theory cool, yeah. yeah, that basically it's not in every anybody's favor to have the majority of, of Bitcoins, to use a really stupid analogy on my part. It's not like Monopoly. You don't want to get to the point right. where you own all the money, otherwise the game is over. And right. it's not in your interest to win the game. Yes. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's very complicated. And obviously it's such a new world that people are just stabbing at it with these very speculative theoretical models. But that does seem to be working out. Mm. You know, just by the sheer fact that it would be so... Like, again, going back to this... Uh, this article that I've been referring to that, that I've sent, um, it's got this thing where it says, uh, in December 2013, half of all Bitcoins are owned by approximately 927 people, such as Fight the Power Revolution, is sarcastic, obviously, as the Winklevoss twins of Facebook infamy among them. Now, obviously, um, 927 people owning all the Bit half of all the Bitcoins is a sort of small number, but it's not that small a number, it's half and it's 927 people and the whole Bitcoin economy is worth three billion dollars. I mean I imagine there's any number of those 927 people who could arbitrarily increase their investment, their stock of Bitcoins, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So I think there's demonstrable self-limitation happening here. You know, like there's the game theory, and then there's the historical fact, and the historical fact seems really clear that people are not exercising an option to massively accumulate. I mean, if we've got 927 people owning half of the world's bitcoins, so half of the world's bitcoins are worth 1.5 billion dollars. Let's say, 
divide that by 100, it's not, it's a tiny stake, isn't it? It's, we're talking like something like uh, $15 million mm -hmm. as being, a, you know, a chunk or whatever, and some of them maybe have a few more, a few, let's say at the max, a few tens of millions of dollars. You know, in a world of 10, multi-tens of billion dollars plutocratic fortunes, we're definitely on that social level not seeing anything of this kind in the in the Bitcoin ecology. So that to me strongly su suggests that this complicated type of economic game theory is 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 working well and there's is producing a kind of distributional ecology which whilst by no means radically egalitarian is nowhere near the kind of monopolistic outcomes that would be easily envisaged given the scale of the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was just gonna. I wanted to respond to, to the first point of Amy's couple points or questions about the notion of mutation. I don't know if there's much um, that I could add to the question, but I do think it's interesting to think about. Uh, another another notion I've been thinking about it, uh, is the notion of an epi. Um, I believe the term is um, epigenic. Um, if, yeah. If, it, it, epigenetics. Epigenetic, yeah. yes. And the idea that uh, that the DNA, so to speak, um, can be there, but in the way in which there's growth from out of it, you can have unexpected, unexpected potentialities realized, which are not necessarily determined by the DNA. And But with the blockchain, of course, we don't want mutations in this sense. We don't want epigenetic processes. Do we? we want it to do exactly what it's what it's supposed to do, yeah. which is yeah. protect, um, yeah. right? Yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. Keep its traces perfect. But where there is where, where we want mutation is is in the nonlinearity and the complexity of the economic system outside yeah. of the blockchain. Yeah. So, so I mean, people, I I agree totally with what you're you're saying here and I think that one very useful analogy of this is to the internet you know that the basic internet infrastructure is fairly simple and extremely consistent so these few basic protocols that govern all internet traffic are you know you could just put them on a few few sheets of code I mean they're, they're, they're not they're not elaborate, they're hopefully not mutating, you know, no one wants HTML or IP or any of these things to sort of start going on a random walk because then the system will fragment in a way that is like non-communicative, it will just simply go into isolated um, packets and you can't build complexity on top of it. So this notion of there being a few very stable rules as a condition for this complication and and elaboration at a, at another level, I think is really crucial. Cool, thanks. But on that anal analogy, that that could be the like the blockchain as a as a system, and then an, a complete economic ecology of of different alternative coins.
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Complexity. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's why this coin thing has become the suffix, hasn't it? I mean, that's this is one of the things actually I wanted to sort of introduce in this whole science question. I mean, the word coin that the word coin has been thrown back into instability as a sign is itself extraordinary thing. I mean, it's this old, apparently extremely determinate word. Everyone thought they knew what a coin was. You know what I mean? It's almost a kind of um, example of a banal, unproblematic word. And now, literally, what is a coin? You know, in this blockchain sense, it's become a complete boundary of the unknown, what a coin is and can be. Um, and it can and this is this is where all this um, proliferation, variation, experimentation, all of this happens in the fact that these no one knows what the limits of a coin are or what it can do or all the different things. I mean, you know, just example like we now have Bitcoin. I mean, okay, I don't honestly know exactly what it's doing, but I mean, it's the fact it exists is this is this fact that this the what a coin is is now radically being reopened. It's for, well, it's equity, isn't it? I mean, as long as like you you add the the fact that in principle you can exchange the right. 25 square inches of print for equivalent money, whatever it's worth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're buying equity in her future production. So it kind of circumvents the whole, you know, no credit functionality in Bitcoin problem um, by, you know, narrowing the field of exchange down to one person that you can, you know, evaluate trust with without going through third parties. And then for that gives you temporal extension. Yeah. Well, Maybe. from the... From from the from the position from the from the position of the art, I think I think Bitcoin is is even even more problematic than what you were describing, Jake. And I, I think it's it's a way of it's a way of gesturing towards like it's like it's like one of those like I mean one of those like desperate attempts by the by a contemporary artist to make the production sort of like legitimize it and make it relevant to larger social, economic, political uh, happenings. Are you? I know this isn't necessarily the level to respond to that, but it, but just out of curiosity, are you are you saying that in a critical Mode, mode, or just, or just descriptive. I mean, descriptive. I mean, right. I mean, critical mode. Of course, descriptive can can be interpreted as critical, right? But really, there's nothing to to critique because because the because the the, the Bitcoin mode of artistic production is doesn't not even have the ambition to take over. Like it doesn't proposes itself as an alternative to the way art is sold or bought. Or symbolic value is produced in the art world. It just it just uh, offers itself as another way of uh, an artist's career being being evaluated in this whole like art world symbolic economy. Right. Yeah. Well, right. But I mean, it also you know in principle extends a far beyond just the art world. I mean, unless you know 
that's not necessarily true depending on how we define the breadth of the term yeah. art world, obviously. But, you know, as we move, as a lot of people think, and I am one of them, think that we will, you know, away from this idea of careers and professions that most people have, you know, at least in sort of the educated, um, technologically enabled sectors of society, to more, uh, you know, multidisciplinary project and contract or contract work oriented, you know, you are a personal cover. A corporation that acquires um, capabilities and does various things and has a value, uh, you know, this could apply to anyone. You know, what is the what is the value of an hour of my time on an right. average over a year or ten years? Yeah, I mean, there was a trend that got a lot of attention at one point of people. They tended to be kind of uh, already established celebrities releasing bonds about based on their own. Um, really? Career potential. Is happening? Oh Sorry? yeah, maybe Bowie did that. Yeah, maybe yeah, Bowie. yeah. <laughs> that's that's right. There was at least him, yeah, for sure. So you could buy a Bowie bond, yeah. And um, it, 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 already in that, but I think it's this is going to be much more uh, again to use the same sort of word, kind of feverish process because it's so much more dynamic. It, it's following a certain trend in the world of art, isn't it? Where the artist and the art, the boundaries become very uncertain. And like, what is the what is the art in Bitcoin? I mean, is the art simply, if we're going to use this signify signified language, which falls apart at some point, but has some mileage? I mean, is the art the signified and the and the Bitcoin just the signifier for that, just the or the uh, switch axis, just index for it, yeah. or has the art, be, you know, crept out into this whole thing? So it's it's monetization has become the art that it's kind of auto monetization is now the art, and actually the kind of initial material, the initial artistic material, is just a pretext for a certain kind of weird. Economic commercial performance art ah. that Bitcoin itself instantiates much more highly than the actual original inches of artistic material that are supposedly backing it. Well, then we are kind exactly, of have to distinguish exactly. between. Sorry, go ahead, Mel. No, I was going to say there's this, but what you're saying, Nick, is. Is from the stance, from the point of view of the outside of the art world, like literally and figuratively, right? You're outside of the art world, but from the inside of the art world, what? And there's another operations happening that it's equal, if not actually, from the standpoint of the inside of the art world, is probably more, more operational or more important, which is this artist is the first one or among the first group of people who's actually monetizing Bitcoin in the symbolic order of the art world itself. So she's the one or he's the one who's bringing this into the art world and therefore extracting value for being the one who's bringing the whole discussion or like the practice of Bitcoin into the art world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's a, that crosses a whole bunch of things we've been talking about today for sure. Like if we were going to look at those 
would you categories in this term? It's yes. extremely complicated, isn't it? What's what's happening here? Like, there's a certain, as you say, symbolic prestige or originality that is somehow then built into this. Bitcoin yeah, it's back to we're back to scarcity again, right? We're back to scarcity again. In the sense that not everyone can be first. Yes, because because in the art world, it in the art world, and when I talk about art world, we're yeah. talking about like the the sort of the kind of like the kind of like virtues and practices that inform the the world of arts worldview today, right? In today's art world, it's only the first person, first person, or the first group of people who do these practices that count as art. There, if this right. actually becomes a prevalent mode of artistic production, then it's yeah. not art. It's craft. It's kitsch. Right. It's just like you know what I mean. It's like yeah. It's like. It's like all the other people who copied Bang Banksy. They're not gonna get like, they're not gonna yeah. get shows. Banksy yeah, will yeah. get shows because he was the first person who kind of like, or he was among the, the first group of people who basically thought about like street art as a medium of intellectual like serious intellectual exchange or something. Yeah. The rest of the people are just copying Banksy. Yeah. They're like, they're like, we're back in the same stuff that we talked about, right? They're just like making doubles. Yeah. No, totally. In fact, there's a very nice systematic progression from the basic Bitcoin protocol where only the first transaction is real and the blockchain is a machine for systematically selecting out all non-original transactions as not being recorded on the blockchain and therefore being exempted from reality as defined by the blockchain. So there's that, first of all, absolutely fundamental orientation to originality at the heart of the Bitcoin protocol, to then Bitcoin as a currency having as its only claim to superiority over all these other altcoins is its primarity again. You know, Bitcoin was the first blockchain currency, and that's why it's Bitcoin, and this whole discussion is about Bitcoin and philosophy and not Dogecoin and philosophy or Litecoin or philosophy or any of these other things. Just by being first, it's in this extremely uh, critical position. And, and it's really hard to overemphasize how important that 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 simple priority is in a world that is um, totally in this structure of war with double spending you know because anyone can just clone clone the protocol and set up a cryptocurrency there's nothing about it that it has other than its path dependency its originality its primarity you know the fact that it's dated first and therefore has these network effects and has is able to build initially this power of incumbency is all it has as a against these competitors and then third as you say then this artistic appropriation that's exactly on the same you know replication of this same pattern isn't it to do with originality whether the only the original has has value, and so it's in in that way extraordinarily 
a suitable project. You know, that sort of that issue of the of the primal and the original is just then cut through on all of these different levels, right, right back. Thank you. So that seems to kind of um, connect to Laura's your comment, um, you know, about Brian Rotman and the function of zero um, as enabling, but I guess also kind of in this case preventing double spending. I mean, okay, that's actually too much, but um, so this establishment of a firstness which is independent of cardinality. Because like double spending isn't just two, right? It's really to the end. So it's the ability of something to proliferate and duplicate endlessly. And this firstness yeah. function preserves something that's independent of all of that and gives it priority over the whole, um, you know, pro quantitative proliferation of what it otherwise is to begin with. I'm not sure how that relates to the function of zero because I also haven't read the Rotman book and the comments were kind of attenuated. But Laura, if you do you, do you see those as being related? What I, I mean, yeah, actually, I think, as you say, it's true. Like, the zero sort of establishes a firstness that pre-exists any material sort of foundation. But on the other side, the way that I saw it is kind of the opposite, is that the zero it, itself kind of produces this doubling of, of the subject. Rotman, um, refers to obviously mathematics um, but also to arts and aesthetics so starting from the like this I don't know the, this um, development of, of perspectival yeah it's really good actually isn't it the vanishing yeah, point yeah 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 right. exactly starts from the vanishing point and then with the evolution of um, with the evolution of, of mathematics, of algebra, and also of a, a paper money, in fact, paper money that is by itself uh, um, not, um, it's not backed by gold, basically, already, I think, in the Renaissance, late Renaissance, I guess, so late 17th century or something like that, I think it was referring to. Um, so basically, even in, in like uh, Rodman was sort of like mapping these parallels, parallelisms in between the development of, for instance, of perspective, in which at the beginning you have the vanishing point, which is external to the to the painting, and then you have, and then the vanishing point sort of becomes internalized. So the perspectival point becomes internalized, and that's where you have paper money, which reproduces itself, and then you get to the last stage that Rodman analyzes which is the sort of, I guess, that book it was written in the late 80s, so he was talking about like euro dollars and like, and basically financial currency, how, what, what he calls like Xeno money, how this money that creates its own value by the possibilities of its own future, so in itself, I guess, I mean, what I think the book is pointing towards, from my understanding, my interpretation of it, is this idea of like double spending or like doubling becomes more and more radicalized, like the doubling of identity, the doubling uh, with it's an identity that and 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 a double a, a doubling of a subject that in a way 
it sort of works by itself. It's automated, really, in a way. So I don't know whether I don't know whether this really answers your question because I guess what it's pointing towards really to me is this like kind of automation of like a Dublin process. But I don't know. Right. That, that's no, that definitely makes sense because that's exactly what happens in the construction of digital numeric representations, yeah. right? Is that yeah. having zero allows you to double count all of the other numerals, and so that is a and that's a form of compression versus like Roman numerals, for example, which is what allows right. algebra to work. I'm trying to like take this further and like relate it to firstness, and I'm not quite there yet. Mm. Yeah, I need also to do some more digging. I mean, I, I really enjoyed Rotman's Zero book a lot, mm. um, but this whole Zeno money discussion is something that is not there for me at the moment. So I definitely need to mm. spend a week having a, uh, some I do some. I read it as well, but yeah. <laughs> We have about uh, 15 minutes left from the session, if you want to be exact with time. And not double it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, okay. Oh. Yeah. Go. I actually had a question, but I guess I'll wait for Laura. Do you mind if I ask it quickly? No, yeah, go, go. Okay, so this relates to like much earlier on, right? And, you know, like, the way, Nick, you were talking about language, it totally, it totally undermines and destabilizes sort of like the first order of cybernetic thought of information exchange, right? And, and because, because we moved away from the conversation, it's hard to kind of, like, remember what part of it I'm referring to, so I have to, like, make a little reference, is, is the fact that, so if, if, by communicating with you, I pass on the, pass on the, like you know what I mean. The way the way the way first order of cybernetics theorized um, what is the nature of information, the ontology of units of information. It's totally not like what the way we are talking about it in terms of like money, because. Uh, because of how. Communication, and I and I've read accounts of it that people people who were discussing how this should be theorized they did not agree with each other, right? But Norbert Wiener's uh, account kind of like was the one that adopted, right? Which basically separates separates the bodiless, immaterial information about something and that thing as being the sort of like the a prior or some kind of a given, right? And that way they kind of like Basically, by adopting this, they did not have to deal with the, with the issue of proliferation. Because if, if communication is just sort of like a, sort of like a reference to right. like a thermodynamic, if, if, a, if an electromagnetic signal is just a reference to a thermodynamic reality, I'm just like yeah. using like, then it's okay because it's not doubling. Right. Because that thermodynamic reality always stays outside of this information network, and it's always kind of like out there, and this this sign can go around and everybody in the world can update themselves 
about this thermodynamic reality through this electromagnetic signal, and then everything's going to be fine. But we are learning now that it's not going to be fine because right. this doubling has ramifications. Yeah. Ramifications that like the first order of cybernetic did not uh, really comprehend or like or like adopt. If, yeah. I, if I'm reading it right. No, I think that's totally right. I think that's totally right. I th I think that the, the Deleuze Guattari critique would just be about organicism. Don't, don't you think, Mo? That like for Vina, the the object of study, whether organism or machine, is treated as this organic unit. Yes. that is involved in some kind of semiotic, non-linear process for its own stabilization. But the notion that it's within some uh, hybrid system in which code is being hijacked and redirected and overcoded is completely outside that framework. Yes, totally, totally. So, Laura, sorry, I took... I. I stole the mic mic from you, but you can you can go ahead. No, don't worry. Um, I just had a very simple question. Um, I was actually went back to have a look at the Columbia paper, and I realized that I had starting reading it, but I think I got up to page three, and then he gives his definition of money that to me was totally I don't know not correct, so I kind of left it. But anyway, so basically. Um, Okay, Columbia defines money as okay, a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a measure of value. Okay, I don't think that as far as I, I understand it and as far as I don't know even Wikipedia goes, a money is not a measure of value properly but a unit of account. Right. Right? So and this is why the open ledger is, is like a great innovation because he allows with this system of accounting that is in fact open and transparent. But I was wondering about like I don't know, how does the the um the function of money as a store of value that could also be questioned eventually relate to the sur I don't know, is there any relationship with the surplus of value that we were talking about before and the function of money as a store of value? Or perhaps it's not like I don't know. Yes, it's an interesting question. I think if you come at it backwards from the most monetized contemporary forms of money, it's easier to answer. And then the question is how systematically we'd move that back. Because I think from, from in the recent uh, form, it's precisely immunization against these forms of hijacking that allow it to function as store of value. That's the, you know, that's the way the logic goes, you know, and were it possible that, that, you know, because in a way there's this virtual store of actual machinic value. If you, if you have a store of value, it's because you can make a certain number of things happen in the world. If it's just people giving you food and services or simply or, you know, through with large stocks of money to vast industrial products, projects, the, the, the world can actually be subject to a system of machinic commands um, by, by, by your wealth. And so if that, can, if that can be extracted by some external party, then of course you've got a bad store of value. 
you know you wouldn't you wouldn't store that machinic potential in a form that was open to being raided by these various other parties um, now if you then want to try and move that back you know through monetary history and down into these more archaic semiotic systems I think it would be you know I don't have a kind of formula that will allow that to happen straightforwardly but but just to say it the relation I think is is clearly there because of the fact that it works so clearly in the final stage yeah because I've been thinking about I don't know in in the Nakamoto I mean the Nakamoto paper for instance it never really right. refers to value in terms of like you know economic value it refers to value in terms of like I don't know the hashing value or the, you know like algorithmic kind of like value so and 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 I know that there are some critiques uh, for instance of of like this definition of money as a store of value as well there's this Italian economist, it's the, uh, Massimo Amato, but also um, Greg Scott, uh, who writes at like that Sweet Possum. He had a like a, a little post not long ago about one of these myths about money that needs to be debunked. It's in fact that the idea that money needs to function as a store of value. So I was kind of, I don't know. I'm just trying to understand if there is any right. relationship. In, in you could you just like very. Um very briefly give me a sense of how this critique of the idea of money as a store of value proceeds. I mean, is it to simply say that you can do everything you need just with the notion of it as a medium of exchange or or what what's yeah. the I guess I don't know. Yeah, I guess this kind of critique works in the direction of yeah, money is a medium of exchange and a unit of account uh, in the sense that obviously right. If I give something, if I give you something, if we have a transaction, you know, it needs to be recorded somewhere. We need both to have like a token eventually right. that says. But I, especially um, Brett Scott critique, I think, is related to the fact that value, anyway, is still like a socially constructed. Um, yeah, it's socially constructed, and and it resides not in the object that is exchanged, but in the in this like belief eventually that this 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 object has the has a certain value right. that this token is able to yeah. equate it. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I just find it interesting, but uh, yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> really, I mean, I obviously, that. like to get back to the kind of hyperinflation question. The m easiest way of understanding what's happening there is that money collapses as a store of value. So that yeah. when money exactly. is is loses that function, you simply want to move it out as quickly as possible because holding on to it is a form of extreme economic sacrifice. So, I mean, I'm open to the possibility that you can run that another way, but it, it certainly seems intuitively plausible that the fact that money has a value as a store of value is the only thing that would ever incentivize people to hold on to money rather than get eliminated. Yeah, but it, well, I mean, time preference, just like wanting to have the ability to exchange in the future, you know, um, 
just like taking as an as a given that your ability your your point present ability to produce value to exchange varies over time is right. not certain then i mean it just seems as if like there's no there's no intrinsic problem with projection into the future of medium of exchange as a, as a grounding function but isn't but isn't um if money has the reliable future function as a medium of exchange, is that not Dependent a store of value? Store of value. I mean, I can't. It seems to be simply. I, I'll be interested. I, I, if if you've got links to this stuff, Laura, I'll definitely yeah. be interested to have a look. I'm not getting it at the moment uh, because it just seems I can't imagine money not needing to be a store of value, but but uh, be yeah. interesting to see. There is this really interesting talk uh, by this Italian economist, Massimo Amato, he's been working on this um, form of money that he calls um, utopic money, with a e-utopic, it's, I don't right. know, well, he's into like local currencies, but right, I've right. been thinking about the possibility of extending like his, I don't know, his logic to perhaps something like global universal, like a, like a blockchain system. And he has this really great talk, he's in French, I, I don't think there's that much like material in English as obviously like things in Italian, right. but I post it, I don't know, like it's, and it's really interesting in the sense that he draws on the, 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 the system of exchange of um, the the fairs in Nantes uh, in the Renaissance or something like that I don't remember well but it's it's based yeah on this idea of like a, a form of money as a medium of exchange and a unit of account uh, that doesn't necessarily need to be like a store of value and again okay. I don't know how that could eventually be implemented in I don't know in 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 practical terms but I just find it like a really interesting concept because again the moment that money doesn't need to represent or to represent the value and it could not store value we wouldn't have problems such as inflation deflation again right and we wouldn't have like issues of um, well obviously I don't know accumulation because why do you need it to keep it <laughs> right no. I don't know I'm just yeah yeah I, I don't know I just find it, I just find it interesting like this possibility out there. Yeah. I don't know. If it's it sounds fascinating, but I can't pretend to have got to first base. I pull something. Yeah. Getting it, yeah. Yeah, so. Um, Nick, going back to a, you know, a term used from the very beginning, but we haven't really hit much, which is transcendence. Um, right. So. Would you understand, like, the, so the value that is stored in money? Which is also the surplus value of you know of everything that people might have that anybody else wants as you know, its exchange value as a surplus value of objects um, as commodities. Would that be a kind of imminence of all of these things to each other? Is that which constitutes, or could we describe the surplus value of things, which becomes the value of money as um, as imminence, or you know, money is a transcendent representation. Of of the actual imminence or radical imminence of all the things that enter the economy to each other? Um, well, I, now, what's the best way of approaching this? 
this this thing. I mean, um, okay. I think in in deciding how to apply this language, obviously, one is applying a whole machine of critique to a certain problem. So, if you were to say, if you were to formulate it in the sense that you've just done, then that would be a critique of money, Stru you know, structurally and formally speaking. So, so if I can sort of translate what you're saying, it would be to say, wouldn't a critique of money go like this? You know, that there is this field of imminence represented by these, by these. Uh, stores of energy and all of this kind of thing and money is the transcendent element in that arrangement because as soon as you say that you're saying that you're already configuring it that so the bypassing of money is in that way implicit now therefore I think it's of course that is something that could be explored, and I will, I'm sure there must be people who have explored it. You know, and they're, they're a kind of a program based upon the abolition of money. There, there must be those things must exist, and some of them at least must at least try to construct themselves as a, a rigorous critique. Um, so I'm sure well, those things both. I didn't mean really, so I guess I kind of misused the language a little bit. I didn't really mean in terms of, um, of attempting to bypass money. I mean, certainly not practically and not really even theoretically either, but to understand what Bitcoin is doing um, as a purification of transcendence and moving from um, trusted third parties as, a as identifying transcendence with these particular parties that are not transcendent, you know, they don't execute like perfect trusted behavior, they're entities in the world, to Bitcoin, which is a more purely um, sort of concrete existenceless, um, yeah. both in terms of, you know, decision making, you know, and reliance on concrete decision makers over its transaction function and so forth, and that this corresponds to um, that transcendences, Bitcoin's transcendences, um, I guess, like more direct isomorphy to the imminence of things to each other, of things that we might want to exchange? Well, I think that the most straightforward way of doing this with the, with the paper is to say, you could certainly say Bitcoin is transcendental in the sense that it's the, it's the, actual formal system for this whole projected commercium. But what is transcendent in this in this model are the third parties. That, that, that any, in calling something transcendent within the whole tradition of critique, you're saying it can be subtracted. Those two things are exactly the same. You're already implicitly projecting its subtraction so I should have been saying transcendental instead of transcendent. Yeah, I think okay. so. So, but then, so prior to the monetary critique of Bitcoin, then we would describe the trusted third parties as transcendental, right? Which is kind of what Absolutely. I've been assuming all along. But transcendent, yeah. 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 
So I guess my main I, question that, was about just, I guess, the imminence term, because that hadn't come up yet. Yeah. But would you agree that that sort of function, that, that is, I don't know, I guess, um, non-problematically can be slotted in to this framework we've been using, this terminology? Yes, totally. I mean, the, the imminence is the complement of the transcendent in, in that it's defined by survival after the subtraction of the transcendent. So in the, in the Bitcoin paper, the plane of imminence is defined by these peer-to-peer, -peer, this fabric of peer-to-peer -peer relations, obviously whose monetary code is now Bitcoin, and, and those peer-to-peer -peer relations is everything that remains after, at least in theory, the subtraction of all of these third-party institutions. So if you want to, you know, that actually is a definition, a sort of practical definition of, of the imminent economic field as it, as it is uh, planned out in this, in this paper. It's what, it's what survives the subtraction of transcendence. Um, so everything that is left after all of these intermediary third-party institutions are swept aside, at least shelved, in theory, is, is your imminent well, Wouldn't is, is that transcendental or imminent? And that's also sort of the other question was the differentiation between the field of people engaging in transactions and the network of people verifying yeah. them. Well, the, trans, the, tra, the, the, the transcendental is... is Coextensive with the imminent, and it's that, and it's that part of imminence that is um, is always already present in it, in any. I'm using language that various stages of the transcendental tradition has discarded, but but it's the ineliminable element of the uh, of the imminent field. So so, for instance, like. Um, what's transcendental in, in the peer-to-peer -peer relation are all those things that are, are essential to the peer-to-peer -peer relation universally and necessarily under any, under any circumstances. Transaction, yeah. announcement, block mining. You, yes, I mean, it will be interesting to exactly define it. Obviously, in the Bitcoin terms, in the future, it's projecting. It's basically the Bitcoin protocol. Right. With with the elements that it necessarily needs to introduce, the notion that there are uh, there are agents, there are Bitcoin accounts, you know, elements that whatever the particular transaction would always be involved. And as I say, abbreviating that to the Bitcoin protocol itself is is basically fine. So the Bitcoin protocol itself is the transcendental element that is therefore always operative. In any particular relation, but then any particular agent is um, part of this. It operates on this imminent plane, but it's empirical rather than transcendental because it can be deducted without problems. Like any particular node can be gone, any particular account can be shut down. Any you know, bitcoins can actually just be vaporized into hyperspace. So any of the any of these particular elements that are flat 
peer-to-peer -peer elements. They're not transcendent elements. They're not third-party elements. But they're but they're deductible just because they're empirical. It's like if you go back to the internet um, and take this again, it's crude, but it's not unreliable basic thing. Coming out of this military technology designed to survive a nuclear war. So you have this original ARPANET and DARPANET sort of security infrastructure for military communications under conditions of extreme military stress, nuclear nuclear attacks. Now, the transcendental element of that is the whole system itself. It will be the protocols, the transmission protocols, and the, the, the fundamental specifications of the network as such, which would apply universally and necessarily to all the nodes of the network. But any particular command center or, or node on the internet is empirical because it can be taken out by a nuclear strike and the system will still carry on functioning. So that's that so this this is the material construction of transcendental philosophy that you get in all of these networks. Any sort of true flat network system is a critical system in a in a in a philosophically recognizable sense. So and Bitcoin so just one just the last final thing is just to say Bitcoin is very much like this internet for money in that you know you can nuke any nodes out of Bitcoin. That's it's designed like he says it's a loosely organized that there are no components of the network that are indispensable. Right. You can obliterate a whole bunch of accounts and the Bitcoin system will still keep functioning just like the internet after a whole bunch of military command centers have been nuked will still keep functioning. So that so that's how though that's how the transcendental and empirical side of the plane of imminence are, are distinguishable from each other. Okay, that was that was a really useful explanation. And it also had kind of a surplus usefulness because so does that imply that the so the um, invention of ARPANET and the origin of the internet is um, is is a form of was a form of critique itself uh, within communication, and that it was sort of spurred by the subtraction of um, physical, you know, reliable physical means or yeah. non-digital means of communication by nuclear extinction, sort of the virtual reality or the threat of nuclear extinction. Yes, I'm absolutely sure that there are um, there are elements of the pre-internet system that strictly are isomorphic with the metaphysical as it is defined in Kant or these transcendent elements that are deducted and they would take the form of indispensable control nodes anything positioned as an indispensable control node i.e. one that if removed from the system will prevent the system functioning is now defined as a metaphysical element that has to be deducted from the system for the system to take on the kind of robustness that is required by this military imperative. And that's why the internet is obviously decentralized and why that, you know, it poses at the very least problems to central centralized control, however much people say well that's been overemphasized it's at least when when you get this famous comment um, the internet 
interprets censorship as damage and roots around it, that is nuclear war speaking. You know, that's it's like that statement is purely rooted in the same logic that the military application of the internet was rooted in. Um, and and it's to say that these these it bypasses any element that presents itself metaphysically as an indispensable transcendent authority because from the military point of view that's an unaffordable vulnerability okay and um this is another just like slight left turn but uh, are you familiar with singularity sky by charles strauss with the festival yes yes i i, I am yeah so that's another, that. takes it a step further where it's not just, you know, where it's not set, not just censorship, not even just extinction, but is like the void of space or the non-contact of things itself, the festival views as a metaphysical element that has to be routed through or routed yeah. around. Yeah. Well, yeah. His stress is always, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say I have no problems with him, but he's always very interesting, that's for sure. You, you've read, obviously, Accelerando. Oh, of course. Yeah. Like changed thirteen year old me's life. <laughs> right. Huh. Okay, so we're we're well above the the seminar time, ten minute overtime, which is perfectly fine. The conversation seems to be sort of like flowing. But if you guys have last questions, or if Nick has last remarks, maybe we can kind of like wrap up. Also, I have a I have a request to to make, and that's for someone who's been in the room or in the hangout from the very beginning, because I had to leave and come back a few times because I had internet problems, and every time I do that, I lose the sidebar text. Mm -hmm. So if someone has been in the room consistently, maybe they can select, copy, and paste the whole thing into. Yeah, the I got hangout. you, Mo. I'll post it. If you can do that, that would be lovely. Because I usually do it, but I didn't get a chance. I can't do right. it because I left and I left and yeah, came back. Sure. sure. Thanks, Jake. That's great. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, is everyone is everyone um, okay with the with the trajectory we're on here? I mean, if I if I treat it that we're going some weird diagonal line between our preset agenda and the stuff people put up on the classroom in time for me to see next week. Um, everyone's cool with that? Or uh, let me just put it this other way. If anyone has course suggestions, I mean course in the navigational sense, just stick them on the on the classroom, you know, t things that you think we need to talk more about, or that are being neglected, or gone through too fast, or any such any such things. Yeah. Sounds great. Okay, thanks everybody. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, this was a great class, man. Yeah. So yeah. much information. Extremely. I have to go back and listen to it several times. Yeah. Uh, yeah, True like. Story, same. Yeah, it's like unbelievable. <laughs> thanks, okay, thanks everybody. That was. All I really right. enjoyed that. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Bye. So thanks time. for copy-pasting the, the notes, and see you guys next week, Sunday, same time. Yep. Yeah. Bye. Super exciting. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.